Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It is April 27, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by the Editor-in-Chief of the Weekly Standard, Stephen Hayes. Good to be with you again, Stephen. Charlie, how are you? Good. Well, you're coming uh, You're coming up to the frozen tundra on Monday. Can you just tell me a little bit about the Midwest Conservative Summit? Yes, I am eager to be coming home to Milwaukee uh, on Monday. We're bringing a couple writers, uh, Mike Warren, John McCormick, Haley Bird. You're going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a half-day summit, basically, in Milwaukee. Um, Weekly Standard podcast listeners and subscribers are invited, uh, although we have a limited number of tickets still available at this late date. Um, and it's going to be sort of an intense discussion for five hours uh, on conservatism and where we are in the country, where we are in the Midwest, where we are specifically in Wisconsin. We'll start off with a one-on-one interview that you're going to conduct with Governor Walker um, about his record, about sort of what he's uh, arguing or, or campaigning on in his reelection. Um, we're conservatism is from his perspective in in Madison, Wisconsin. Then we'll do a couple panels on covering Washington and on Congress in the midterms. And then we'll end uh, with a conversation, a lunchtime conversation with me and Speaker Ryan. I'm talking to him about his recent announcement, Congress in general, Congress from a historical perspective, entitlement reform, President Trump. We're going to hit it all. So I think it's going to be good. I'm very excited for it. Yeah, the, the weirdest story of the last 24 hours, and I have no clue, by the way. I just want to just lay that out. I have no clue whatsoever what the story about the dismissal of the House chaplain is all about. Do you have any insight about that? I actually put out some emails saying, hey, could you help me with this? Because the the, the spin is that, that Paul Ryan might have fired the Catholic chaplain because of a prayer about tax fairness which seems highly unlikely. Some of the speculation this morning um, online, and it, it just doesn't make any sense. It, it, it has to do with this, the, um, well, look, there are two different arguments. One is that the, the that Ryan fired the, the chaplain because uh, he was critical of the tax cuts and some prayers. And it does seem yeah. to me that, that, that the chaplain was more political than, than uh, congressional chaplains usually are in that argument. And then... Um, that there was another series of speculative tweets uh, about the timing of Paul Ryan's decision to step down that had to do with claims that he wanted to uh, take advantage of having five years of government funded basically help, um, you know, staff after he leaves the speakership and whatnot, which I thought was utterly preposterous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm ready to the biggest day and then. All right. Um, obviously, uh, the biggest story of the day with historic significance is what's happening in Korea, where you have the, the leader of North Korea and South Korea who are shaking hands with one another, having a summit, signing what looks like a peace deal. Um, you have an interesting piece, though, um, basically saying first the victory, then the celebration. So give me your take on what's happening in Korea. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I may be the, the, the skunk at the proverbial garden party. I mean, obviously... What's, what we're seeing, the images we're seeing uh, from the Korean Peninsula today are better than what we've had in the recent past. We're not seeing threats. We're not seeing overt attacks that the North Koreans have conducted on their, their neighbors. Um, much more uh, conciliatory in uh, tone, um, important gestures, important symbolism, I think. And there is the hope that this leads to something uh, bigger and and lasting. Um, There is every expectation, every reason to believe that it will not. We've seen these kinds of things before. 
Um, North Koreans make commitments routinely that they intend at the time they make the commitments to violate. Uh, we've seen that over the course of three decades on everything from reconciliation with South Korea to their nuclear program to um, concessions they've accepted from the West that are non-nuclear to human rights, uh, what have you. And there, there is a perfect track record there. They have not kept their commitments on any of these things. So why do you think they're doing this? I mean, there, there's obviously a narrative which strikes me as plausible that that that, that perhaps they woke up and decided, or Kim woke up and said, "Hey, you know this this Donald Trump, uh, he's he's a crazy guy, and he actually might uh, he might he might blow us up, and so maybe I ought to make nice." Well, look, I, I, regardless of what their actual strategy is, I think that that's a factor, no matter what, right? I mean, I think that that the fact that Donald Trump has abandoned the failed diplomatic um, lane that um, the United States has traveled down under Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama is part of the reason for why we're seeing what we're seeing. I mean, look, those three administrations successively had, in a sense, outsourced our diplomacy on North Korea to China. And they did so based, in my view, on a flawed assumption that China and the United States share interests there. Now, we may have some overlapping interests. They're not the same interests at all. And we know that China has been um, aiding North Korea in any a number of ways, economic, military, what have you, for years as we've been depending on China to do our bidding there. So uh, President Trump deserves, we, we can say full stop, President Trump deserves credit for abandoning that failed approach. And sometimes these kind of shakeups can yield positive results. We all, of course, hope that that's what happens here. Um, I don't know exactly what uh, Kim Jong-un is up to here, though I suspect he didn't wake up one day and just say, I'm so scared I have to take a different approach or wake up one day and say, you know what, I've thought about this whole Korean War thing and these threats I've made to the United States and I really don't think that works. So uh, so I'm going to you know, turn, turn in a different direction. I think it's far more likely that he wants to use what leverage he has now that he have, has nuclear weapons capability to – uh, have the United States remove its troops from South Korea to win some concessions from uh, the U.S. and the West on food, uh, on other things that they've long sought, and look to improve his status in the region. He also seems to be triangulating between the United States and uh, the the more liberal president of South Korea to, in, in a certain sense, uh, um, going around the United States. Do you see that as part of his calculation that he's actually that he actually is playing kind of a chess match here? Yeah, look, I think if he can mix metaphors. Yeah, well, if he, if he can sp split South Korea from the United States, uh, I think he'll be in a much better position. And and there's no question than the current South Korean leadership is much more um, dovish on relations with North Korea than its predecessor. And look, that was part of the campaign, um, the recent campaign in South Korea. So it's not any surprise. Um, it's interesting to me that you see South Korean leaders repeatedly in public praise President Trump. Say none of this would have mm -hmm. happened had it not been for Donald Trump. So at least rhetorically, they're trying to maintain that bond that they have with the United States. I think it's wise, even if they don't fully believe it or uh, um, attribute their success to him, it's smart for them to continue to say it, A, because President Trump uh, will, of course, love to hear that, and B, because uh, Kim Jong-un will at least think that he's not in a position to uh, create that daylight that he may be seeking um, between the U.S. and South Korea.
Now, I, I feel like this is a conversation we've had about 100 times before um, since uh, since January of 2017. But you could certainly argue that this was a very good week for Donald Trump with uh, with the French president coming into town, uh, the uh, this the summit up in Korea. And yet it feels like it's overshadowed by other things, including the Ronnie Jackson implosion, the Scott Pruitt, uh, the Scott Pruitt hearings, uh, the 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 call to Fox and Friends, which was uh, well, what did you make of the call from Fox and Friends? We talked about this yesterday on the podcast, and I, I, I read to uh, your, your your colleagues Hugh Hewitt's comment that this was great. This was fantastic. He should do this more often. <laughs> no. <laughs> that, that 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 is not uh, what what Donald Trump should do more often. Um, no, I thought it was with disturbing. Diamond and silk more. If yeah. he just was on Diamond and Silk show more often. Uh, it, it it was it was disturbing. I mean, I don't see how you listen to that and don't come away a little bit rattled. Even even if you're a, a, a nominal Trump supporter, or you want the president to do well, or you support his agenda uh, in Congress, you you have to come away from that a little rattled. Not that we didn't know that Donald Trump was capable of this kind of thinking and and. Um, a series of non sequiturs and ranting and rambling, but just to hear it again, particularly yeah. in the context of of the big stuff that we're doing. I mean, you're talking about uh, Iran and the Iran deal with Macron, and you're talking about North Korea policy. You're talking about all these big things, and then you see the president do something like that, where he just seems off. Yeah, and of course he made he made uh, news, and perhaps uh, weakened his his legal case by by saying, yeah, yeah that uh, Mike, Michael Cohen was uh, representing me in that whole Stormy Daniels mess. You know, yeah. not to me- not to mention, um, kind of throwing Michael Cohen under the bus. The Wall Street Journal story this morning about Michael Cohen with that quote. Boss, I really miss you yeah. up here. I mean, isn't isn't that one of the most cringeworthy quotes you've read? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting, and, and, and I feel I almost feel sorry for Michael Cohen, which I never thought I would say. Yeah, I don't. Um, but <laughs> you, you, uh, let me label this speculation. I'm not. I don't know anything here. But it, it was hard not to read that piece and and come away thinking that Donald Trump wasn't a, one of their sources for that story. I thought that yeah. was uh, that I thought that was pretty interesting. He talks to the media all the time, of course, and I think, you know, um, rank and file voters, news consumers don't necessarily see that. They see him bagging on journalists in the media and beating up Maggie Haberman at the New York Times and others. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that he then picks up the phone and calls those very same people and talks to them all the time and gives them stuff on background because he's so obsessed with how he's portrayed in the press. Uh, I, w- I want to get to uh, Brett Baer's interview with James Comey in, in just a moment. Uh, but uh, the, 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 the Senate Judiciary Committee voted um, 14 to 7 to pass that legislation. It's not going anywhere, but pass legislation that would protect the special prosecutor, special, uh, special prosecutor uh, Bob Mueller. Uh, what was, of course, most striking were the, the number of Republicans that voted with Democrats to do this. Mitch McConnell has made it clear that it's not going anywhere. He's not going to bring it up for a vote. Was it a significant moment, though, for at least people wondering when when would some congressional Republicans stand up and show their independence to Trump, at least in a symbolic way? Wasn't it a a significant moment? I mean, I think you kind of have to be looking for it (laughs) for it to be a significant moment. But um, look, better than I better, I think that that we have that kind of a symbolic moment than than something that demonstrates the opposite. And we've had a few of those. People were all over the place on this. Ben Sass opposed it for constitutional yeah. reasons. There's a very good Haley Bird uh, story at the Weekly Standard website uh, explaining some of the rationale, some of the thought process 
processes that uh, senators went through as they thought about this vote. But um, yeah, I think I think on balance, it's a good thing to signal Republican support for for Bob Mueller and his investigation. All right. So J- James Comey, former FBI director, goes on Fox News for the first time. And uh, uh, Brett Baer made a lot of news, didn't he? He sure did. I mean, uh, let me announce at the outside that I'm not objective about Brett Baer. Mm-hmm. He's a, uh, he was a college friend of mine. He uh, continues to be a very good friend of mine. Um, so I- I'm not objective about him. But man, that was a hell of an interview. Um, you know, nine days out. So Comey's book came out uh, nine days before Brett does this interview. And he's done dozens of interviews in, in between. And the fact that Brett Baer was able to, to generate so much news from the uh, this interview, I think, suggests two things. One, how little the mainstream media was interested in asking some, I think, very tough questions about James Comey and how he handled the Clinton administration, what he did with this dossier, uh, other things that are sort of untouchable for the mainstream press, unfortunately. But it also suggests just how skilled an interviewer Brett is. And it reminded me of, of I mean, I've seen Brett do this again and again and again. He's, he's just very good at what he does. The reason he's as good at what he does uh, is because he knows the issues. He's not sort of the the newsreader uh, type who who sits up and you know just reads from the teleprompter and doesn't actually engage. I mean, he's doing reporting all the time. He takes the time to to study this stuff. He consults with people on you know people who will be Comey defenders, Comey critics, to find out what the best way to to, to conduct the interview is. And I just think he he, he got a, a a lot of news out of it and did it in well, you know, he did it in a respectful yeah. way. He was aggressive, but he was respectful and let Comey well, give me, give the, me the, the top your your top three takeaways. What, well, what what you got out of that interview that we did not get out of other interviews. Well I would say they all have to do probably with uh, the way that Comey addressed questions uh, surrounding the investigation on Donald Trump and this dossier. I mean, you know, Brett was asking Comey specific questions about what he knew about the dossier, what he knew about its origins, what have you. And Comey gave these very vague and evasive answers, suggested, you know, suggested affirmatively at one point that that this was a Republican funded operation, that he didn't really know much about the DNC and Hillary Clinton side of the funding. Mm. And in a way that if you've been if if you've been uh, you know alive and you have a, a news reader or a newspaper reader's understanding of the news, you have to know the other stuff. I mean, how could you not? I mean, we know that James Comey spends some time on Twitter, unless he's just following people who think like he does. You have to know about this stuff if you're just a, a newspaper reader or a general news consumer. The fact that the former director of the FBI either didn't know. This the answers to these questions when he was in the middle of this process is a problem or if he's just claiming not to know them now for convenience sake. Well, that's a problem, too. And I thought that was that is a a, takes a huge chunk out of James Comey's credibility, in my view. Yeah, you know, he started off strong. But but I do wonder, you know, after nine days, whether James Comey on net has improved or eroded his credibility. And I'm I'm tending to agree with you that uh, sort of, you know, chip, chip, chip. I, I think that, you know, there was a sort of the, the you know, lawman of unquestioned rectitude image that, that really has not survived the last nine days uh, intact. It sure hasn't. I mean, it really hasn't. And people who have invested in James Comey, I think, made a mistake. I mean, President Trump's critics who have invested faith in James Comey and his arguments 
have made a, a mistake because I agree with you. His, his credibility has taken a, a pretty considerable hit. And I think it's taken a hit not only because of what he said, but, but the way that he's portrayed himself. I mean, he's portrayed himself as the lawman, just the facts, just the evidence. And it turns out that that's not at all the way that he's conducted himself, either, either in the course of writing his book or in the interviews that he's given, where he seems always to be giving the benefit of the doubt to, to Hillary Clinton and her team and Loretta Lynch and, and others, uh, but never giving the benefit of the doubt to others. What you need in that job is somebody who cares just about the facts and the evidence. And it's increasingly apparent that that is not what James Comey was all about. Um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously see whether, how that, how that affects him as a central, a central figure in, in the Bob Mueller investigation. So you can probably guess what sort of reaction I'm getting to the piece that I have on the weekly standard about Pat Buchanan getting in touch with his inner fascist that people are going, <laughs> what do you mean just now? I mean, really? I mean, is, is, is this really anything new? And m- my point is, well, you know, no, he's been, he's been nursing and playing and, you know, with these ideas for some time. I think what's extraordinary are the number of people on the right who are now more and more willing to say that they are disgusted and disillusioned with democracy itself. And, and this, this fascination and admiration for autocrats is, uh, you know, obviously it's not, it's not breaking news. I mean, we, we've seen that with, with the president himself, you know, how he likes strong men. But for people who assume that liberal constitutional democracy is is an accepted, unquestioned norm. I, I think this this is this is a, a, a necessary caution. No, absolutely. I mean, your piece is fantastic. If anybody's listening to this and you haven't gone and read it, please uh, pause this and go read it, and then come back and rejoin us. Look, I mean, I, in a certain sense, I understand why people would say, "Well, you're just you're just seeing this about Pat Buchanan now." I mean, he's been basically saying this kind of thing for a while. But mm-hmm. you were right to identify his most recent column as. A, a new sort of step in this process where he is openly questioning, I mean, sort of mocking derisively liberal democracy and people who believe in it um, and and praising authoritarianism. I mean, it is it, it is a stunning development. I hope the reaction that you've gotten is far more uh, of the first variety that you said, people who say, well, gosh, you're just figuring this out now that that's Pat Buchanan mm-hmm. and far less of the people who are saying, yeah, you know, Buchanan's got a good point here. Well, I mean, this is always the problem with with liberal democracy is, is is that it can it can seem kind of pale and uninspiring, you know, compared to you know the the great vision, you know, the strong man, you know, the the, the men of will, you know, who can who can get things done. And I and I I think we've kind of seen that strain out there for for some time that you know that that the democracy, you know, the the things that we take for granted, these norms that we take for for granted aren't necessarily as inspiring as the romantic vision of the man on the white horse. Yeah. No, I think you're right, actually. And, and this is sort of a perfect place to to drop in a plug for our friend Jonah Goldberg, who's got a new mm-hmm. book out called The Suicide of the West, where he gets into a lot of these issues. Um, and he talks uh, very persuasively, to, to my way of thinking, about how the, the miracle, as he calls it, of, of capitalism and, and um, consent of the governed, uh, democratic republicanism, is not an, an accident and it's not inevitable. We, it, it needs sort of constant care and tending to in order to perpetuate it. And it didn't come out of the blue. It came with, with forethought. Yeah. And, and it's too easy to take for granted. It's way too easy to take for granted. And that's what people are doing now. And that's why he mm-hmm. called it the suicide of the West. I mean, if we, if, we, if we don't protect it, then we are choosing to abandon it. And that would be uh, tragic, in, obviously, in, in virtually every single way, respect. 
Stephen Hayes, thank you so much for joining me and looking forward to your visit uh, to the to the Midwest for the Midwest Conservative Summit on Monday morning. If you want to sign up for that, there are still some limited seats available. You can go to the uh, Weekly Standard website uh, or just Google Midwest Conservative uh, Summit. Uh, and thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back again next week.